I don't have one pet issue. I'm really interested in social impact itself. The more I did, the more I realised it was more about powerful stories rather than big organisations. Welcome to the second renaissance where we decode the rebirth of human creativity in a technology-driven world. In this second season, we explore how sustainability is elevating our human consciousness and catalyzing us to create within constraints. We decipher why now is the biggest entrepreneurial opportunity since the dawn of industrialization and what leaders can do to harness these winds of change. I'm Anders Sorman-Nilsson, global futurist, impact champion and father and your host for The Second Renaissance. Today we have a very special guest on The Second Renaissance. Not only is Ed Copa one of my best friends from my high school days in Canberra, but as a young immigrant coming to Australia, I also fondly recall the feeling I had that if a then young Ed Coper eventually emerged onto the political scene in the future, Australia would become a more progressive, more inclusive, more enlightened and future fit society. In a sense, he has now firmly stepped into that hopeful prophecy and certainly arrived with a bang. In today's show, we do a deep dive into the somewhat dark world of the disinformation age, which Ed has masterfully canvassed in his book, Facts and Other Lies, and how leaders and entrepreneurs can A, design a better future story, and B, utilize the tools of the digital age to win the hearts and minds to create enlightened groundswell movements in an ethical fashion. In some ways, today's show was just an excuse to reconnect with Ed face-to-face, but I'm sure you will find this chat as enjoyable and rewarding as I did. Now, some quick words on pedigree. Ed is a leading communications expert and was on the front lines when the internet collided with democracy, growing Australia's first online political movement, GetUp, to quickly amass more members than every political party combined. He powered Change.org's global expansion into over 18 countries and pioneered techniques to bring politics into the digital age. And he's been behind the scenes of many of the last decade's most prominent social movements. He's advised campaigns on every continent except Antarctica and high-profile changemakers from Malala and Greta Thunberg to Richard Branson. Ed founded the New York-based Center for Impact Communications, which has led efforts to safeguard U.S. elections from disinformation and overcome vaccine hesitancy. Ed also founded a New York City creative agency that serviced multiple Nobel Peace laureates, political and social leaders, to scale their social impact. His groundbreaking campaigns have raised hundreds of millions of dollars for causes, won landmark social change, and have featured in several museum exhibitions. Ed is based in Sydney and is director of the Popularis Communications Agency and recently masterminded the rise of the climate activists and the successful Teal Independent Movements. I bring you Ed Coper. Welcome to the Second Renaissance. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, we do go back a very long way, so it's a great honour to now be on your podcast. Yeah, great to have you here. I feel um, particularly happy, I should say, today uh, because our seat of McKellar, which is where we leave, live, is uh, one of the areas where you've inspired real change. Um, I don't know how we should sort of describe what you do, but... Kind of going back to the late 1990s, I always thought 
because we went to school together, um, I always thought this is a real agent provocateur, a change agent, and you've somehow found your calling doing exactly that, agitating, uh, inspiring change, and, and certainly in the most recent elections, tilted a very safe liberal seat here in McKellar towards the Teal Independence. So. Yes, and uh, a lot of our teachers back then uh, told me I had to get serious and could never make anything out of being an, an agent provocateur. So I've been very lucky in my career to prove all of them wrong uh, and have, have been very fortunate to forge a career uh, out of social change and particularly uh, using new technologies like the internet or social media to, um, to harness social change and to encourage democratic participation. And so working backwards, the, the most recent thing that, that I've been working on, which I'm very proud of, uh, was helping all of these amazing independent candidates in the so-called teal seats, like the one we're in here, we're coming to you from the beautiful uh, northern beaches. And uh, Dr. Sophie Scomps was an absolute incredible um, candidate, um, as, as were they all, but, uh, but they were all political uh, novices. And um, sometimes that can be a real asset, as it was for them. But you do need to have a little bit of the, the expertise about how political campaigns go. And we're really proud to provide that expertise and to help them on their campaigns. Um, and, uh, and as we all know, um, in doing so, they were successful beyond anyone's, any political pundit's expectations, which really speaks to the power of community, especially somewhere here like the Northern Beaches. Yeah, and you have this, I mean, you've come back from New York and spending a lot of your time overseas working with, you know, the likes of Greta Thunberg or Greta Thunberg, <laughs> as it's uh, beautifully translated into Anglo, and uh, Malala and, and all these amazing things. Go and check out uh, Ed's uh, website. And of course, do I say it correctly? Popularis? Yes. Yeah, yes. Popularis. And, and you also said Greta's uh, name correctly. Oh, good, so, good. So you, yeah. you get the Swedish yeah. tick. Even the Swedish tick of approval I get yeah. today. Fantastic. I haven't I haven't forgotten even though I sound more Aussie these days perhaps but you've you know you've sharpened your sword in a sense um, you know working with some of the great global change agents uh, and then I'm curious just in your journey in terms of coming back to your native country of Australia and sort of seeing the fertile ground here for change and taking some of those you know global tools you know, digital transformation, you know, data centricity, mm -hmm. psychographics and how you kind of inspire movements. How has that journey unfolded well, for well, you? Well, it really came full circle because it all began um, here in Australia uh, after I graduated from law school with no intention of becoming a lawyer, like increasingly more and more um, law graduates these days. And um, I was very fortuitous with the timing because right at the same time, this bold political experiment um, called GetUp was uh, was launching, and I was a, was lucky to be a part of that uh, when it was getting off the ground, um, and it was at a time when the internet was a really optimistic force for good and hope, and um, and we were able to harness things. You know, back then it was probably more the days of mass forwarded emails. If you remember those, they became quite annoying. But a little bit before social media really became the place that. Uh, yeah. So give me a little timestamp. Where are we now in I the think 20 we're in 2006. So social media existed, uh, but wasn't very central in everyone's daily lives as it is now. 
Um, email was really the technology of the day and, and websites and people could take an idea and forward it to 10 friends and that became very powerful. And uh, we really had to invent the whole model of political participation with GetUp, sometimes by necessity. Uh, if we wanted to raise money that we didn't have, uh, logically, you should ask a lot of people to give a small amount. Um, that doesn't sound so radical now, but no one else was doing it back then. And it turned out to be very successful. And um, similar to, to this year, 2022, how people were feeling, um, they were feeling like there were no avenues for political expression. They felt like the government's values had become out of touch with their values after a decade or so of, of, of John Howard. Um, and there was a real appetite for political change. And it came crashing into these new technologies that allowed people to connect over that political change. Now, that model turned out to be ahead of its time and, and very successful. So I, w I went overseas to, to apply my trade, taking some of those techniques uh, to other social change issues around the world. Um, I was in New York for about 10 years. And um, the more I did social impact campaigns, the more I realised that it was more about um, powerful stories rather than big organisations. Um, so I was very lucky to work with some leading change makers who as individuals had amazing stories and were able to um, affect great social change. Um, and I learned a hell of a lot and I came back to Australia just uh, um, the start of the pandemic and um, have very much appreciated getting back into working on issues here and seeing how the country has changed. Um, you know, the amazing progress that's been made uh, with First Nations issues, for example, the conversation has changed completely from the country I left a, a decade earlier um, on climate change. Uh, we're, we're getting to a point where um, we can have some kind of consensus that allows uh, governments to take action um, and people in this cycle were so excited to, to participate in politics in a new way. So many ways it reminds me full circle of where, where it all began uh, back then 15 or so years ago um, in the early days of the internet. I mean, I even recall coming out um, to Australia you know, as a, as a, as a late teenager and, and sitting down in school with you. I think we did ancient history, modern mm -hmm. history together, uh, maybe even a bit of French. Um, that's what I remember at, at this stage anyway. And, but also seeing your involvement in, in school politics and these social causes, including reconciliation, uh, activism. I think you were debating at various UN uh, model sort of assemblies on, I think you might've even been involved at the time in the Republican movement to, to some degree as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's right. Um, so um, yeah, I think you're, you know, a fantastic walking example of the sort of, you know, the JK Rowlings, et cetera, who, you know, are, are an expressive middle finger to the people who told them, you know, this is not something you could do. But, you know, within, within all of that, um, I'm curious, what, what's the sort of, you know, what's the core driver for you? Like what's your, the Japanese would call it the ikigai or life's purpose. What's the core driver? 
Um, well, it, yes, the ikigai, I, I guess, has has remained the same since you know since even high school, um, but the times have evolved to to make my ikigai a bit more aligned with with things that 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 it's okay to talk about now, and that's a wonderful mark of progress in society. And so I I don't have one pet issue. I'm really interested in social impact itself, in how people can affect change, and have built the skills to do that. So I like applying that to all sorts of new challenges that come up. There are consistencies over the years because we haven't solved a lot of the big inequalities in society. Uh, and so some of them you, you've mentioned and even the Republic, it's interesting to see now that's that's back on the, on the agenda. And um, when I- inevitably our current Queen of Australia falls off her perch, I think it'll become much more mm. top of mind uh, for a lot of Australians. But um, but it's really, you know, my, my values are deeply rooted in, in equality. And I think that's part of the Australian identity and fairness, which is part of the Australian identity. And you and I grew up in Canberra and you, you are close to the beating heart of politics there, whether you like it or not. Um, it's it's just part of the fabric uh, around you and, and you're very lucky to get exposed to the inner workings of how the country is governed and how change happens. And I, I think that's very formative um, in how people who grew up in Canberra view the world and was definitely formative for, for my interest in, in politics and social change. Mm. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned story before, and certainly we'll come and talk about your phenomenal book, which is called Facts and uh, and Other Lies. You'll see that this is what a book looks like when uh, when you're trying to read it in in front of toddlers and 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 uh, infants. Um, great book, uh, love it. Um, one of the things you talk about in the book is is the importance of story and the fact that, you know, as humans, we're not necessarily hardwired towards facts and, and reason and, and rationale, etc. And when I hear about some of the change makers that you've worked with, and, and including yourself, I think of Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, you know, uh, someone living, you know, potentially, you know, quite an kind of an ordinary life like Greta or, or even Malala or, you know, even, you know, us and then finding a calling and sort of exploring this extraordinary world you know meeting a mentor you know symbolically picking up the sword and 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 sort of answering the call to arms you know fighting demons you know going into the cave you know all these sort of steps of the hero's um journey and then of course those people having this scalable but disproportionate impact i mean when when you've seen other talent like whether it's Sophie Scomps or whether it's Zali Stegall or, or, or some of the aforementioned, do you kind of go, yep, this person's got the X factor or the, it's about the cause, it's not about the person? How do you, kind of, how do you map all of this? Because you then have to tell a story that builds a movement for change. Well, we can, we can make a story out of anything. Um, and you don't have to be a remarkable person or have something remarkable happen to you. And Malala Yousafzai is someone who something remarkable happened to her. If you, your listeners aren't aware, um, she defied the Taliban uh, by going to school as a girl and was shot in the head uh, as a result. She survived and, and went on to become a very powerful advocate for, uh, for girls' education. And not everyone's going to have a story like that. I think Greta is a good example of, of someone who just decided to make a difference one day, decided to defy uh, what was expected of her, which was going to school, 
uh, and the ripples went out across the world and, and it had this fantastic effect. And one of the reasons why was because climate change was uh, an issue in, in search of a hero um, or a mentor, as I would say she is in, in, in that story. But it all goes back to something much more fundamental, which is just the way our brains are wired. Um, it's an evolutionary advantage for us to tell stories and understand stories. And it is how our brains see information in the world and interpret it. We turn it into a story. So one famous experiment from the 1950s, which, which really neatly demonstrated this, was some psychologists just showed participants a series of geometric shapes. There was a a square and a circle and a triangle just moving around each other in a simple black and white animation. And then they asked the participants to describe what they saw. And without fail, every single participant gave an elaborate story. You know, there's a man who's gone to meet his wife, but he sees another man who's with her. And so he chases her into the room, but the woman's very angry. This was just a, literally a triangle and a square moving. But our brains see information and we want to put that into a story, and then we communicate with others into a story. And so my book is about disinformation and the power of disinformation and why it has become so prominent. And one of the reasons it's become so prominent is that disinformation is normally wrapped up in a very compelling story, like a conspiracy theory, whereas facts we think should speak for themselves. We put them out there to counter disinformation and don't put them in a story and, and assume that our brains are going to then favour them over some Hollywood tale of heroic people saving kids trapped in tunnels who are getting their blood harvested for an age-defying chemical. And that's a wonderful yarn. It's all bullshit, of course, but our brains are going to remember that over the truth, which is much more mundane. So story is fundamental to our ability to talk about issues. Now, you said in the book, and I, I love that, that little quote, um, that as human beings, we like to think that we're now somehow rational uh, and, and reasonable and uh, maybe even non-emotional. But of course, we oftentimes make decisions purely based on emotion, and then maybe we post-rationalize them. And in the book, you point out that we are no more enlightened today than a 13th century French peasant. And, you know, in parentheses, at least the French peasant knew they were misinformed or weren't, wasn't very enlightened. Do you want to just expand on this and, you know, give a little bit of the psychology of, of this hardwiring and how it plays out? Yes, this is the fundamental thing to understand. And um, the, the big myth that we all live under is that we are rational creatures. And, of course, we're, we are wired exactly the same way as that 13th century French peasant that we thought was guided by superstition and um, and not science. And we had, you know, the first Renaissance uh, before we encountered the second one as the, the, the title of this, this series. And the Enlightenment and centuries of, of philosophical thought um, that was really aimed about uh, emerging from the Dark Ages by becoming... Uh, society that would trump superstition with science and trump uh, myth and belief with fact. And, um, and we made great advancements in all of those areas. And we can uh, objectively know the world around us if you think about the, the amazing scientific discoveries. But what hasn't changed is how our brains are wired. Um, and we just don't care that much about truth. That's just not one of the prime motivating factors in, in society. We care about belonging. 
We care about getting on with our peers. And if getting on with our peers and belonging means that we have to contort facts in order to say something, our brains will do it in a heartbeat. In fact, we do it subconsciously. We don't even realise that we do it. And there's no correlation between um, years of education and intellect and rational thinking and our, um, and our doing this. We all do it. In fact, there's been studies that show that the more educated you are and the more, quote-unquote, intelligent you are, you actually do this more because you are better at disguising your irrationality with things that sound rational. So you form your beliefs irrationally, but then you come up with a very coherent explanation and you go finding facts and you present your facts as if they informed your opinion, but you're really just cherry-picking them to reinforce your opinion, which was guided by emotion. So what's what's an example of that? Is that a, a politician who's very good at reasoning and, and rationalizing things, or is it even someone that's well-educated? Like I know doctors who are anti-vaxxers and call the pandemic a plandemic. Um, you know, we, we know other doctors who will, you know, medical doctors who will, will spruik all sorts of alternative therapies, for example. Um, like, are they examples of someone who's, you know, very well educated, but, you know, has this post-construct or post-structural way of viewing the world? There is such a volume of information out there, we can find any information to back up our pre-existing beliefs. Um, that's what the internet has given us. If if you go and consult Dr. Google, invariably you will convince yourself you have terminal cancer with no matter your symptoms because there's such a wealth of information out there. You can find anything you want to back up anything you yeah. want. So we do this. Um, and if, you, uh, if, if, if society doesn't equip people with the skills to recognise good information from bad information, then we're very susceptible to people doing this effectively. And that's what we saw during the pandemic. But we all do this. We don't have to be Pete Evans who are trying to sell our ultimate re- alternate remedies for COVID cures or Craig Kelly telling us to drink bleach. Um, we all do this instinctively. So you and I might have... Uh, pre-existing opinions about climate change. Now, when there is unprecedented flooding, as we've experienced recently here in New South Wales... Um, we go, tick, Yes, Proof we point. say, this reinforces my beliefs about climate change. Now, someone who doesn't believe climate change is real uh, might interpret the same extreme weather events very differently and see no connection or, or causation between the two issues. Um, or maybe they do, but deny the link between man-made climate change and, and the fact that humans uh, are responsible for it. And they might go and cherry-pick their own facts to support this. There's always been climatic variation. We've lived through fluctuations in temperature. Um, or there's other reasons to explain why there's this unprecedented flooding or heating or tropical diseases that are, that are um, appearing in places where they weren't before. So we think that we see events like the flooding and they convince us that climate change is real. And we assume that other people will see the same events and get convinced that climate change is real. But in fact, it's the other way around. We have our opinions about climate change and then we'll either accept or reject the evidence based on those pre-existing. So um, a a good example uh, or a good analogy to think of I think it was uh, Jonathan Haidt said that that our, our we think our brains are the judge in a trial assessing both sides, but in fact our brains are the lawyer. 
we have our arguments and we present our arguments trying to get a certain outcome. That's how our brains work. So then any reasonable man or woman or Renaissance man or woman might then just say, well, you know, if this is the case, if we're so hardwired and we have these pre-existing worldviews and we're presented with facts or maybe even sometimes story, but those stories and facts don't fit our worldview, we're still stuck in the same modality. Like why on earth even try change people's minds and how do you do it? if it sounds like there's very little that will actually sort of cut through? Well, quite simply, we have to because our lives depend on it. The subtitle of the book is Welcome to the Disinformation Age. And what I mean by that is the the playing field is no longer level between information and disinformation. It is massively tilted towards disinformation. And what are the consequences of that? Well, people with an ulterior motive can go and create and manufacture and spread their own realities. And we've seen recently those realities can be quite harmful. One of the the best examples recently is the pandemic. Um, Millions of people have uh, gotten ill and many of them died because of disinformation about COVID, Um, either Uh, that they shouldn't take the vaccine or avoid public health measures, um, lockdowns, wearing masks. These things have become very uh, identity uh, related political issues um, and it's all fueled by disinformation. And so society had seen the erosion of trust in institutions over the last couple of decades. And when we came to call on that, when this unprecedented public health emergency happened, we found that people wouldn't follow public health advice. So we really need to get back to a place where we restore trust in those sorts of institutions. And the other issue that uh, where our lives depend on it, of course, is, is climate change. Um, If we were rational creatures, if human beings accepted information and facts in a neutral way, then we would not be behaving the way that we are towards climate change. It would be an objective thing that continuing to do activities like burn fossil fuels um, or dig up uh, or frack LNG and and have a gas-led recovery uh, or to slow the transition to electric vehicles, uh, you know, all of these things that, that exist today in Australia and elsewhere, that would not happen if we were rational creatures. But there is a very small um, element of society that profits from disinformation around climate change and by controlling the narrative around climate change. They do that with good stories. They do that with their own facts and statistics, and they do that by capturing the political class and eroding trust in our institutions. So these are very serious consequences. Now, we can't just step back and say, oh, well, that's human nature. We can never do anything about it because the consequences are much too serious for us to do that. So the cost of inaction on climate change, we've heard, is is way greater than than the cost of action. And of course, you know, here in Australia, where we're broadcasting from today, we've heard that you know, for every fossil fuel job in mining, for example, that we'll lose, we'll create another four. Yet when people hear that, um, for example. We've been doing consulting work up with GW3 up in uh, up in Queensland, so the Greater Witch Sunday Alliance, and it's this wonderful sort of um, tripartite combination of of the Witch Sundays. So largely tourism. Uh, we've got Mackay, Isaac, and and the Bowen region. And so you've got beef, and you've got mining, and agriculture, and sugarcane. 
all kind of playing together under one umbrella of the GW3 and they're trying to collaborate. But when they hear this, and, and actually it's, an, it's a region that has, has struck me as, as being particularly enlightened on even, even you know, the people I've spoken to there in terms of powering the transition towards renewables and people are aware. But when you, when you throw out facts and statistics that you know, for every one job that you might lose here, there's another four in the renewable economy, but people can't feel it or sense it. How do you sort of how do you bridge that divide? And we might just come back to the idea that you know politicians are able to not necessarily lie, but when they're talking about the future, they can make up a different story. So maybe firstly, how do you get people to kind of go, yes, we're innovation nation, and and and, and there's the, all these jobs that are going to emerge magically in the future. How do we bridge that gap? And then, and, and then secondly, um, maybe just a comment on the idea that politicians can't necessarily lie although they do uh, but when they tell a story about the future uh, that doesn't come under the same scrutiny I guess as something that's happening in the present moment well I think it's a wonderful example to talk about is uh, is what people think in central Queensland and some of those communities towards climate change um, one of the misconceptions that people who don't live in those regions um, have is is that those people have got their head stuck in the ground. They know that change is coming, and I'm sure in your work with uh, with those groups up there would have highlighted this fact. They know that change is coming, and change is incredibly confronting. Again, it goes back to how we were wired as wired as humans. We don't like change, and we become very change resistant. And for every job lost in those industries, four might be created. But when that, that job that is being lost is your job and you don't have one of those four jobs in the future, then that creates a lot of uncertainty. And disinformation is distinct from misinformation because it's deliberately spread. So who is deliberately doing this? They are creating an environment that plays on those human traits and those characteristics about us being change resistant. And if you think about a a community in central Queensland, where do they get their information? They, they live in, in what we call a news desert, which is an area where local and regional news is largely extinct. And we can get into the details of how and why that happens. It's all related to our disinformation age. It's one of the big drivers. But one of the consequences was that a lot of their um, information and local media was consolidated into the Murdoch Empire. And we know that that uh, particular news company has been very hostile to any action on climate change. And they have been one of the reasons why Australia really lags behind the rest of the world in terms of having a consensus uh, about the need for action on climate change. So you're talking about communities where their only access to information is coming from sources that are trying to convince them that the future lies in coal and coal adjacent industries and that climate change threat is overblown and that action on climate change equates economic ruin. And their political leaders have adopted those same lines uh, from that same news company. So it's not a level playing field of people in those coal communities uh, assessing the information out there and making a rational decision on what's best for their future. They're getting a lot more information that is harmful and a lot less of the information that, that would be um, highlighting some of those facts that you're talking about. So the challenge for us really is um, addressing those news deserts by putting in uh, to those communities the types of information that makes them excited about the future and the opportunities for their communities. Mm. 
because this is where the tools of the trade um, for you and Popularis and, and, and many of the teal independents and change makers around the world at the moment have become digital, whether it's you know Instagram or, or Facebook and you know there's micro segmentation and you know we're able to be people centric because we're data centric and all of these things. Um, but at the same time that digital news media in a sense and, and some of the social media companies have also left the, you know the traditional old media, newspapers you know the old fourth estate that was going to hold you know the bastards honest and all the rest um so traditional media um without that sort of same connection say to to the land like the local newspapers gone you know the local abc journo lost their job so we got news deserts um traditional media is not as important in terms of even swaying opinion and then this whole new digital disinformation age um, i know in this most recent campaign you you pointed out that um the liberals spend a fair amount of money on traditional media and that that was a very expensive way of trying to sway voters versus the digital being much more effective do you want to just comment maybe on some of those numbers but also on this sort of dichotomy of as we lose maybe analog physical traditional media in favor of digital what are you know what are the pros and cons of that well we've got to go uh back a few decades to to really understand why these changes occurred so the, the traditional news and information which was fact-based um yes it had it by its biases yes it wasn't always um correct but um, it relied on a business model that couldn't uh, stray too far from a social consensus around an issue because they relied on advertising revenue. And the newspapers and television networks would gather the news, build an audience and then sell them uh, the eyeballs uh, to, to advertisers. Now, when the internet came along, people were able to get for free what they used to be able, what they used to have to pay for to, to read in a newspaper. Mm -hmm. So classifieds are the big example. If you want to sell me a used lawnmower, you used to have to pay to put that an ad in the paper. Now you can put it on a post on Facebook or or somewhere on Craigslist and mm -hmm. um, and list it for free. It completely destroyed the entire news media's business model, and it exposed the fact that fact-based news is not profitable. And there's not really any getting around that since. Now, what were some of the consequences of this? Um, either uh, to, to survive in terms of a business model, uh, you had to start paying for the news. Now, people don't want to pay for news because they can get it for free. And they'll go to places where they get it for free. So if you put your news behind a paywall to pay for its quality, you lose, uh, you lose your audience or you have to become biased to tailor to the people who want to pay for it so that they, you don't lose subscriptions. And the other thing that they did, and they found, um, Rupert Murdoch, again, going back to him, found that hyper-partisan opinion was much more profitable than uh, neutral fact-based news. So that's the Fox News model in America, um, which they've imported through Sky News here. Um, that generates a lot of eyeballs, so it actually becomes very profitable. But that's not information, that is infotainment. And, and that is harmful because it present, presents people opinion masquerading as news. 
So all of these radical changes that disrupted the way we get our information coincided uh, with the rise of social media. And people started getting their information from social media, which was never designed to be a place that we get our news from. It was designed to do other things, mostly, again, as a viral advertising platform. Mm -hmm. And it's wonderful at doing certain things. And there are wonderful positive benefits that social media give us. But it wasn't designed to, to, to replace traditional media. And it meant that what had become a healthy information diet became a very unhealthy information diet. And there is no filter for fact. And it is a very effective platforms, which leads to your second point, traditional advertising for politics versus, versus social media advertising. We like social media as users because it quantifies what our peers are thinking. Again, another fundamental human need. We want to do whatever's popular. We want to think whatever's popular. I look at a post on Facebook, I can count the number of people who like that opinion because there is a, a counter, there's a like button, which shows me how many people that quantifies a fundamental human need. So we are predisposed to trust information that we get from social media. Now you can use that um, when you're advertising, say for an independent candidate, and that is much more effective than traditional advertising. But the downside of that is people will also, also trust faulty information. They will also trust disinformation when they see it. You point out in the book, and correct me if my statistics are wrong here, you are you are the fact checker, um, <laughs> guilty as charged, that false news spreads six times faster than real news. Just talk us through that and why that's the case. It's one of those very scary realisations that people come, uh, come to, and, and it underscores the fact that the playing field massively favours disinformation over factual information. Now, there's a couple of very good reasons as to why it travels so much further and faster. Uh, one of them we've already touched on, which is it's normally wrapped up in very compelling stories. Uh, you normally encounter it as a conspiracy theory, especially in times that we've experienced globally in the last couple of years of very sudden change. We want to make sense of complex situations. We want to make sense of the world. We want to see patterns even where there, where there are none. And so we get drawn to conspiracy uh, laden disinformation because that's how it presents information. It says a pandemic. Uh, I'm sure that that doesn't sound right that it could just happen. Surely there's some nefarious story behind it, like Bill Gates wanting to sterilise people to control population. Uh, we go looking for stories like that. Now, that travels a lot further and faster. The second reason it travels a lot further and faster is that people are on a mission to spread it. We generally want the facts to speak for themselves. If you are an anti-vaxxer, you are on a mission to spread your worldview to others like a virus. And you connect with others and you form groups and you, you spread information amongst each other. That is what social media is designed to do, to allow you to form groups, form connections, find others who think what you think, and then to share information between each other. It is purpose-built for just that type of use case. Whereas if you are someone who believes in vaccination, you're much less likely to go out there and sing about it on social media. You take it for granted. If you want society to address um, you know, a pandemic, then you must meet the intensity and passion which, which, with which others spread disinformation to spread your information. But we generally don't do that, so it spreads a lot further and faster. 
So six times as fast. This just in many ways just means that we really don't care about truth. We care about, as you point out, belonging and making friends and feeling like we're part of something. There's a quote, at least it's ascribed to or, uh, or accredited to John Maynard Keynes. I think there's some debate about whether it was John Maynard Keynes or just not. Facts. Yeah, just facts. But it is about facts. So he allegedly said that when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? And in the United States at the moment, we've had Uvalde, we've had Buffalo recently, I mean, horrific mass shootings. Uh, are the facts there on the ground changing anyone's minds? How, how's this playing out in terms of the misinformation, disinformation, malinformation landscape from, from your perspective? Uh, well, I had the, the unfortunate um, experience of having to work on gun control issues when, when I was living in the States. Um, and I was there through Sandy Hook, uh, where you know around 20 kindergartners and their teachers were were murdered in similar style to what we just saw in in Uvalde, and it, it was the most thoroughly depressing uh, experience of my professional life. I've never worked on a, on an issue that was so deflating. And people in the U.S. thought that after Sandy Hook, if that doesn't change people's minds, if that doesn't spur action, then what possibly could? And it didn't. Uh, Obama was the president and he presented some fairly minor um, gun control reform legislation to Congress and it failed. What we need to understand when, when you look at a, an issue like gun control in, in the US is, is what we call the intensity gap. And this is fundamental to understanding all disinformation and um, you know the vaccine dis examples we talked about and, and, and even climate change. And when you poll people in America, the overwhelming majority of people support gun control. In fact, around 85 to 90% of gun owners support gun control. They're in favor of universal background checks. The same number of Trump voters support gun control and universal background check. And it's very strange in society where you have 90% of people thinking something for there to be no political will to act on it. What's going on there? And, and the What's going on is the fact that the 10% who don't care about it way more than the 90% who do. And that's the intensity gap. And when you are a motivated, passionate and connected 5 or 10% of society, you can exert your will on the other 90 or 95% of society. And that's what we see with gun control. Now, maybe this has been a watershed moment in the US. Um, maybe we'll see something different. I am the eternal skeptic there through my experience of trying to get traction on the issue. I've worked on every issue under the sun and it's really hard to see a, a path forward because of the intensity gap there. Um, so with vaccines, the 5% of people who are anti-vaxxers care about it way more than the 95% of people who don't. The minority of people who think that there um, is election fraud care about it way more than the 95% the of people who don't. And there was this very concerning study that some computer scientists did in the, in the US where they mapped online networks and they looked at the pro-vaccination clusters and the anti-vaccination clusters and they mapped that by 2030, 
anti-vaccination narratives will be the mainstream and pro-vaccination will be the minority because those clusters spread to undecided clusters, whereas pro-vaccine clusters didn't convince anyone else that they were right. So that's the problem that we've got to confront. We've got to be as passionate about the truth as people are as passionate about uh, disinformation. The internet, in, in your observation, sort of symbolised by some of the leaders or, or various timestamps, has evolved from a, you know the internet of democratisation and social movements, Arab Spring, towards you know, an internet of hate, uh, which is scary. And I think, you know, all listeners, all viewers will agree that it sounds like, you know, the playing field is just really unevenly distributed in favor of, um, and I hate to say nutcases, but, um, you know, people who, you know, are firmly entrenched in these in these narratives that have no basis in, in fact. I mean, what, what hope is there um, and how do we, you know, on a, on a grand scale, right, in terms of, and you proved it here with the Aussie election to a degree, but also on a, on a sort of local level. I, I spent the weekend with, um, with my um, father-in-law and uh, who's very, very staunchly Catholic. He thinks the Catholic church is, is, is way too progressive. Um, that's how uh, how serious his 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 beliefs are, but of course he also blames the current crisis in in in, in Eastern Europe on firmly on America uh, and NATO. Uh, he's been isolating uh, pretty much in the Hunter Valley for the last two years. Um, it's been harder to get up to the Hunter Valley than to uh, to get into Australia uh, to visit him, um, and he's refused the vaccine. Um, I love him dearly. Right, but you can see that our worldviews are so different, and I sometimes go, you know, how do I convince him, or how do I bring him across, or do we just, I love you, Herb. Um, how do we just, or do we just agree to disagree? Like, so on a on a on a planetary level, how do we, how do we convince people or build a narrative that that shows people there's another way, and then also. You know, on a local level, how do you sit around the, the Christmas table and actually have a functioning conversation? This is the absolutely fundamental question. And your experience and, and your family's experience is being played out in so many families across Australia and, and the world. Families have been, have been torn apart um, and uh, we've seen some of the consequences of that. So someone might um, have a contrary view on some of the issues you mentioned, like vaccines or lockdowns, um, and they get cut off from their friends and family as a result. And some of them have also lost their jobs as a result um, if they worked in certain industries. Now, what does this go back to? Our fundamental need for, um, for, for uh, humans is belonging. And these people have been cut off from that fundamental human need. Now, separately at the same time, back to the original part of your question, we have this unlevel playing field where the internet and the ways we get our information have gone from something that offered hope to something that favours hate and fringe extreme opinions. Now, what that means is when you cut someone off from the usual social 
um, mitigating factors. When you live in a community, the social cost to having a contrary opinion to your neighbours is normally quite high when you live in the physical world. And so that has a, uh, a normalising effect that fringe opinion uh, stays fringe because to get along, we need to think like each other. The internet and social media changed that. So now um, when you get cut off from your physical social groupings or your family or your job, you can go and form those connections online. And you can go and find people who share your fringe opinions and your extreme opinions and you form very strong tribal bonds with them because that's the fundamental human need. Now, unfortunately, when you do it on platforms that shut out any contrary uh, opinion and reinforce what that group thinks. Now, how do you signal to the to that group that you are a good person, that you have value? You show your hostility to outsiders because that's what tribal creatures do. You are belonging to a tribe at the expense of uh, of other groupings, and so we do that now if we're cut off from our peers by being hostile to their views and hostile to their opinions. We show with passionate intensity that we are pro-freedom, anti-lockdown, and we go and get in our trucks and drive to Canberra and protest on the lawns of Parliament House and feel that dopamine rush of doing it side by side with people that are our new tribe and our new identity. Now, that is what happens if we cut off those in our friends and family groups that don't have our, uh, who don't share our opinions about something. So no, we don't cut them off. We don't defriend them on Facebook. We don't mock them and, and show to our grouping how good we are by humiliating, you know, how stupid they are for having a contrary opinion. What we need to do is actually very difficult. We need to work out ways to reach out to these people and connect with them. And instead of focusing on the differences, we need to focus on the similarities, the shared values. So in the example of your, your father-in-law, what is he expressing there with his reluctance to get to vaccine? There's a scepticism maybe that could be healthy of pharmaceutical companies, which we know have had unethical practices in the past. That might not be irrational, even if his conclusion is irrational. You might share some of that scepticism. Or he might be doing it over a concern for public health. If you think the vaccine is harmful and you tell others not to take it, you share a value with others that we should look after the health of our communities and we should spread information that safeguards our health. Now that is a shared value, mm. even if your conclusions about how to do that are completely opposite. The people who went down to Canberra were really passionately trying to preserve our democratic ideals. Whether or not we agree with their conclusions on how to do so, whether or not we agree with their observations that, 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 they've, that they don't exist or are under threat, maybe we share some of those values. But instead of starting with those shared values, we generally focus on the points at which we diverge. And that's just the opposite of what we, what we should be doing. We should be um, talking about what we have in common, welcoming these people back into the fold, uh, before we ever get to the point of, of difference. So if you think about experts who've studied similar things over the years, a lot of them have worked on de-radicalisation or cults. 
And the only way you can get people out of a cult or de-radicalise them is by their peers reaching out one-on-one and having in-depth conversations and slowly turning it round and bringing them back. There's no easy, easy solutions here. The other thing that we tend to do uh, is when we see people expressing these opinions on social media, we want to correct them on social media. Now, this is not the platform for someone to change their mind. Mm. Nobody ever said on Facebook, you know, I was wrong. That's a really good point. Thanks for thanks for highlighting mm. uh, that. I'll know better next time. That is a public broadcasting platform. Mm. That is uh, a place where the incentive is to be loud and right. In a one-on-one conversation, the incentive is completely different. So we need to take those conversations out of the public and into the private. You know, that's just, that's just how we do. If we switched off the microphones right now, our conversation would change. It wouldn't be the same conversation if the microphones are on. So we need to think about the forum that we have those conversations as well and try to find consensus, try to find middle ground and find a way to, to really reintegrate people back into society that have been forced into rabbit holes. Mm. So Herb, you have not been disinvited from from family for <laughs> Christmas. Um, and I can empathize, right? Because, you know, I had the I had the flu shot last Thursday. I'm not going to go all Joe Rogan here, but, um, <laughs> you know, I'm like, is it just coincidence that, you know, I felt a little bit miserable over the weekend or felt like I was actually coming down with the flu? Who knows, right? But I can empathize with him in his views because... Uh, he's got some underlying health conditions, uh, l- some lung challenges. Hopefully, I'm not oversharing here, Herb. Um, and um, and he was really concerned a few years ago when, again, sort of contemporaneously with him taking the flu shot, he anecdotally experienced that he was under the weather for for several weeks, and so he thought. You know, and he, you know, at the time he ended up in hospital. And again, I'm not saying medically that that was the cause, but, but, but there comes a story, that, and it becomes, yeah. you know, that is rational. And one of the differences for for Herb, you know, if he'd been experiencing the same things in the 1950s, the only source of of medical information he probably would have been exposed to was his local doctor. And people in that generation were predisposed to listen to their local doctor because that was the only source of information, and there was a high level of trust. Now these days, you can go and search for your own information. There is a, a volume of information where you can go and find the answer that you want. So if you suspect that uh, that the flu vaccine uh, is related to those symptoms you're experiencing, rather than going asking one point of information and getting a, a, an authoritative answer, you will go and find supporting information for both sides of that argument very easily. That's what the internet is. And so we do that. And so that is just an environment where it's conducive for us to exist with parallel realities and parallel truths and to reinforce uh, what we want to believe and what we want to think and for you and Herb to diverge in your opinions because you can go and find information that reinforces what you think and he can go and find information that reinforces what he thinks rather than saying, hey, we both went to Dr. Smith and I guess this is the fact. Mm. I'm fascinated by by your thoughts on extremists and 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 you know changing their worldview and 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 you know ex-terrorists. I think it's is it Majid Nawaz who does some really fantastic work in 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 this space. Him and the likes of Sam Harris talk about this you know this difference between 
building a steel man versus a straw man. I'm not sure if that's that's language you guys use internally in terms of this. It sounds a little bit similar to to building sort of shared values and and realizing that you actually have some some common ground as opposed to just you know collapsing each other's you know rational models of the world. Yeah, there's some be, there's some fascinating academic work that that relates to terrorism that are, that has has come to bear on disinformation, and we should think of things. Uh, like QAnon, in the same way we think of things like uh, Al Qaeda and ISIS and uh, and things from that from that field of study. There's studies that show you can go and um, convince people to change their mind on some really fundamental uh, issues, like um, uh, say they took uh, some Palestinian students and some Israeli students and gave them hypothetical solutions to uh, the Middle East uh, conflict, and they were happily able to trade away things when framed correctly. But as soon as those groups saw something as what they called a sacred value, they became very hostile to any compromise and very hostile to any um, solution that would lead to some, uh, some kind of settlement. Now, what the internet and social media have allowed us to do is to form things that are sacred values to our identity. And people who believe in QAnon, it's become a very big part of their identity. People who were radicalised in Al-Qaeda, they could track, took a a relatively long time to get someone radicalised to the point where they would join Al-Qaeda. They were very shocked to find that um, ISIS uh, could radicalise people in a much shorter time frame. Uh, you know, maybe days instead of weeks or months um, because they use a lot of social media. QAnon can radicalise in minutes because it is so infective. If you want to use the virus metaphor, it is it is hyper-contagious. And, um, and then it goes on to become core to people's identity. And when we are talking about things that are core to our identity, changing them is hard, very, very hard. We will defend our identity with every fibre of our being. We've seen this with climate change in some com- conservative communities has become part of their political identity, uh, you know, especially in, in the US with, with Republicans. We've seen that with transgender bathrooms and, and, and um, women's sport in the US. These things have become, uh, and even abortion, you know, which wasn't a big issue for conservatives before the 1970s. They are now core identity tenets for their political um, beliefs. And so um, changing people's minds on those things is different than changing their minds on other things, which they might be more open to doing if it's not about their identity. Now, I I face this challenge um, on, I think, quite a a personal level. Uh, You never become a prophet in your hometown or certainly not in your family. But for many years, I I was working with, with my mother on repositioning her very much at the time struggling family business a little menswear store in in stockholm sweden in an age of again you know digital dissemination of of information and i i wrote a book called digilog how to win the digital minds and the analog hearts of tomorrow's customers so more commercial in a sense in in its focus than 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 the work you do which is on a you know on a planetary and, and social impact level but with huge, I think, repercussions for, for business as well. Um, but I don't think I was ever able to really sway my mum's thinking. Even in the book, I say, hey, don't throw away the analog baby with the digital bathwater. You know, it, you've got to excel in the analog world, in the physical world, and in the digital world. Winning digital minds, analog hearts, 
you know, all of these things. And I thought I had a great narrative for change. Yet I almost got the sense um, that her identity was so firmly entrenched in this physical little shop where the best type of customer service was just a, you know, a smiling human face, knowing the customer's names, the greeting, you know, the handshake pre-pandemic. Now, when the pandemic came along, at 104 years of age, this business just had not digitally diversified fast enough. And, and sadly, my mum and dad had to file for bankruptcy. But it was almost the sense that she was happier seeing the business fail on her terms, going down in a ball of fire, because she hadn't changed who she was or her sense of self in the process. She was almost like this bastion for the analog world. And she'd almost prefer to kind of fail as opposed to saying, hey, yeah, the digital world actually has has some merit. Do you come come across those kind of worldviews or does that just, you know, again, reinforce the confirmation bias that you know we've, we've talked about here? Well, you, you, it, it's a wonderful example for, for a number of reasons and uh, of the things that we've been talking about today, but also a, a, a wonderful story about just the, the digital transformation that's, that's happened across um, the, the corporate world as much as our societies. But also you two as individuals coming at the same issue with completely different pre-existing worldviews and you know when when all the world when you're a hammer all the world's a nail you're a digital hammer and you saw the solutions as as digital and she's an analog hammer and and she sees the the solutions in, in analog and you know probably the truth was somewhere in the middle but you're caught up in these external factors um that rely on a very quick transition in a very far a, a very short amount of time and as we were mentioning before, we hate that as people. Um, we don't like change. Now, what about instead of a, 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 a menswear business, your mum's business um, was uh, fixing trucks in central Queensland, the, the trucks that worked in the coal mine. Now, you know, she can see the digital storm coming as well as you can, but her natural inclination is being very resistant. In central Queensland, they know that that, that coal mine won't be around forever. And what do you do? You, you are wired to be resistant to change. You know change is coming and that's where conflict happens both within ourselves and, and between people. So it doesn't change the fact that those forces of change will, will happen. And in fact, they happen, but they, they create winners and losers. And, um, and all of the stuff we've been talking about today is just as applicable for the corporate world um, as it is for um, political issues. And in fact, disinformation itself has become an enormous issue. There's this fascinating study where some researchers in Europe created a fake company and then paid some Russian disinformation for hire businesses to build its reputation and then for a few thousand dollars to trash its reputation, which it successfully placed uh, articles in you know, the Financial Times and some very serious mainstream press for about $1,500 uh, to trash uh, the corporate reputation of this hypothetical um, company so if if your listeners think that this is not an issue for the for their business as much as society mm -hmm. then then they might be in for a rude shock as as your mum was when when finally that digital transformation came um, whether we like it or not so i think that broadly our information ecosystem has changed but we haven't changed with it like your mum we need to equip ourselves with the skills to navigate that transformation but it's actually already here 
It's not a coming storm. We are living with the consequences of that storm having already blown through town. But we think it's a coming storm and we don't know that we haven't built the skills to deal with it. Digital media literacy, civics education, these sorts of things that allow us to actually handle the way that society is structured and information is structured now, it's already here. So we need to deal with it in the same way that your your, your mum mm-hmm. needed to deal with it probably a little bit before. Yeah. I mean, I was—I have to admit, I was a, I was a little bit anxious about having you on the show here, given given the, the name of your book, Facts and Other Lies, and you know, welcome to the disinformation age. Given that I'm a futurist, uh, weirdly, you know, made up profession in a sense. Uh, so there's the first little bit of you know <laughs> make believe narrative. But you know, we we sort of cut our trade and 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 sharpen our saw and sword in the world of scenario planning of thinking about 2030 and alternative future worlds it's not predicting one future but it's preparing for a multitude of different worlds but of course all those narratives are made up because the future hasn't happened yet how do how do i and and other people who sort of sell the future in a sense and alternative futures what should we be thinking about as we as we design narratives and um i guess firstly and then secondly as the internet and, and digital gets more sophisticated whether it's the metaverse or virtual realities and you know mixed realities and we find these media that are synthetic media machine learning you know we've seen the you know the the tom cruises of the world you know running for 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 office um you might want to comment a little bit more on that how do we both you know utilize those for storytelling but also do it in in an ethical and mindful way well, the future's still up for grabs. That's why the work that you do is important because um, you're not really predicting the future. You're describing current trends and hypothesizing where they might take us and maybe even making recommendations for where they should take us. So I think that's one of the misconceptions people have about futurists. You, you're actually looking about what is happening currently um, and, and, and being able to synthesize that into something that indicates the direction that we're traveling in. But more than that, we are in control of the direction that we, we are traveling. These problems that we're talking about are of our own making. And that gives us both the ability to change them, but also puts the onus on, on us to, to, and the responsibility to change them as well. So when we think about um, how to, to advocate for our versions of the future, it is all about the narrative. That is the word that, that you mentioned in your question. That is the, that is the, the, the word to pick up on. And my goal in writing this book was to tell a narrative that opened people's eyes to the fact that these changes have happened, that we live in a different era, but we try to fight these problems with the tools of the last era. What should we do? We need to fight them with new tools. We need to learn new tools. That is the future I'm talking about. That is my opinion as well. I can't avoid any of the forces that we talked about in the book as much as you can't when you're bringing your own biases to it. We need to be cognizant of that. We need to be transparent about our our own worldviews and biases if we then want to create narratives that inform the future. So one thing I'll pick up on that you mentioned is some of these trends was machine learning. I don't think a lot of people realize how much control of our lives machine learning plays. Um, 
across every industry. And we have ceded a lot of control to what are essentially algorithms that now no longer have any human intervention. Now, what did that mean in terms of social media? Um, it led us to very dark places, very harmful places and very bullshit-laden places. So there became a volume of information. We outsourced our thinking to a machine um, and, say, on a platform like YouTube, where the incentives were created for completely different purposes, right? YouTube or Alphabet is the, you know, the parent company has to return shareholder value and to do that, they need to keep people on their platform. So you write pieces of code that are designed to keep people on your platform. Now, unintentionally, as those machines learned and learned our human behavior and tried to mimic our human behavior, it would take people down rabbit holes one recommended video at a time until by the end of it, they were leaping over the, the, the capital ramparts and, and beating police officers with American flags. How does that happen? It's because we seeded uh, the, the information diets to a machine. So we created those algorithms and the onus is on us to, um, uh, to make sure we don't do so in a harmful way, mm -hmm. that we harness the power of do that, uh, to do that in a beneficial way. There's enormous potential. I'm sure you've talked about a lot of like some of the opportunities from all of these technologies. We don't throw out the technologies. We just need to evolve things in parallel, mm -hmm. which is the way to make sure that they are beneficial, not harmful. And the way I view your work and, and seeing what happened with a with a with a sort of teal not landslide victory but you know there was, certainly was a you know conscious change just so like we see the rise of the conscious consumer or the conscientious consumer these days um, we are seeing you know real movement being built as people are sharing ideas and stories and facts um, about climate change uh, about the importance of looking after our planet ESG, etc. But I think also a hopeful message here is, and, and I, the, the name escapes me at the moment, I think it's a Georgian professor who's talked about the 3.5% required mm. in society. So to really, to your point around the intensity gap, when you, want, when you have people who actually want to create good and, and progress, it takes 3.5%, a very convinced 3.5% to do good at the same time. So that I would invite your comment on and, and maybe where you've seen that playing out and please fact check that as well. Uh, and then secondly, um, just the concept of, you know, the tools of the trade here, uh, they can be used for good or for, for evil. I mean, what do you see in, in even the Teal campaigns or, or in Greta Thunberg's narratives, for example, that's kind of like, yep, yeah, a careful selection of, of facts that support that worldview. Yeah, and we have to be cognizant of our, of our own biases too. So anyone who's worked in the political advocacy space would be guilty of forms of disinformation, which are things like cherry picking statistics or selectively quoting something or anyone who's ever written a high school essay does the same thing, right? That's what, that's what we naturally do. And we've got to make sure that our audiences are armed with the ability to recognise those things and to evaluate what I'm saying uh, as critically as what they evaluate Pete Evans or Craig Kelly or Clive Palmer is saying. So the 3.5% the uh, that you mentioned is this idea that there is a tipping point 
uh, with a, a, a groundswell around an idea in society. And in my experience around getting traction issues, I'd say that gut instinct feels about right. Mm. I can dress it up in some rational facts and statistics mm. and arguments, mm. but my gut feels that it's about the same level. When you look at um, uh, Kuyong, uh, where the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, just lost his seat to, to Dr. Monique Ryan, um, there was about 3.5% of the electorate who had door knocked or volunteered or had posters or T-shirts of Monique Ryan. And uh, that was about the level of that community who really passionately had embraced that idea. And it was a complete whitewash uh, in terms of, uh, of, of um, election result, more so than any of the other um, teal seats. And I think that's a pretty healthy microcosm that shows when about three or 4% of a community is really rallying behind idea, how, how transformative that is. So it, again, it can go, cut both ways when three or 4% of the community is really passionately around uh, gun rights or anti-vaccination ideas as well, they can be very potent. When people want to take to the streets in, say, the Ukraine's uh, maiden revolution in, um, uh, you know, a few years ago, which precipitated the, the Russian invasion in 2014, a similar number of people were out on the streets. So you see around the world that kind of threshold being very uh, persuasive. But of course, what we need to look at now is the ability to manipulate the situation to either convince people to adopt ideas that are not truthful or are harmful, or to project the fact that you might have 3.5% of the population behind something when there isn't. You know, these sorts of technologies that you've talked about, the, the way the disinformation ecosystem works, and, and the best example we have of this is, is the Trump MAGA uh, supporters in America. They have um, very uh, influential media spokespeople in the, the really hyperpartisan far-right Breitbart Fox News, Infowars, Alex Jones type world. They have political elites who are embracing their ideas and, and parroting back to them like Trump and his, his acolytes. And then they have grassroots supporters who are very hyper-connected using social media. And um, that is such a powerful combination that currently half of America lives under this fiction that Joe Biden lost the election and in 2020 and Trump won the election. That's how powerful that disinformation formula is. Um, now, who knows how big of a seed that started with, but because they had the tools of manipulation available, available to them, it quickly surpassed that 3.5% to the fact, to the point where you can happily live in um, complete isolation from any truth around the election and carry that uh, really passionately held belief that Donald Trump won in 2020. So the tools are available to manipulate this at scale. And if that's true, that you only need three or 4% of the population to, to fundamentally upset the apple cart, then we should be worried about the harm that mm. can be caused from that as much as the ability for us to harness that three or 4% to do to use it for good. Mm. Wow. I, I'm uh, equally mesmerized here, not trying to predict one future, but, uh, you know, preparing for alternative future worlds uh, about the merits and, and the potentiality both for, you know, dystopia as well as utopia. 
in in the world, the digital future of of disinformation that you that you paint in a, in a way. Um, not sure whether I feel calmer or more just <laughs> agitated or this sense of inertia that I need to go out and and do something about um, about this at the moment. Um, I guess as a as an eternal optimist, I always just go, "Hey, yes, it's it's better to be aware of what these digital tools uh, can achieve when in the wrong hands, and I guess the wrong hands, in a sense, being very, very judgmental or discerning." Um, are using them and utilizing them so if you're fact-based or at least to the degree that we you know create an illusion that we're fact-based um and you want to fight for good then these tools are available and you know the opposition is certainly utilizing them that's what i kind of walk away with are there any things that you feel like we've missed or we've glanced over or how can people get deeper into into your work and well, your, your metaverse yeah. of ideas you, you yes join my metaverse with your avatars uh you have to be optimistic you have to be optimistic this i had a lot of feedback um how dark and depressing this book is which is why it's also littered with dad jokes to to uh break the tension um but you have to be optimistic because the, the future is up for grabs. And right now we're living in a moment where the people who've realised how information works and how opinion is formed are using it for nefarious motives. And it's not just political power as well. There's a great deal of profit available in disinformation. Um, the, the people spreading vaccine dif- disinformation are making tonnes of money off it. They sell alternate remedies. They sell books. They monetize their YouTube channels. They... Um, you know, sell their own books and and their supporters lap them up eagerly. So we're living in an environment where regulation, uh, society and our own individual understanding has not caught up with reality. So we need to address all of those things if we want to safely navigate our our way out of it. And the first thing that, that your listeners can do quite easily is just reflect inward. Right. We all do these things when we're on social media. There was a fascinating study that found just by nudging people to think about the accuracy of something before they posted it, reduced the posting of misinformation by half. So in other words, the majority of what is going around the internet uh, is unintentionally shared just by not putting our brain into gear before we use it. There is a way to be good online citizens that um, is cognizant of, of our own role in these um, these forces. And then there's being a good online citizen in terms of our skills to recognise others when they do it uh, and to critically inquire all the information that we see and to evaluate it. So to just use your mum as another example here, as someone who uh, inhabited the analog world versus digital natives, we tend to assume that young people are much better when it comes to disinformation than older people. And the early research backed that up. Young people are digital natives. But we've learnt as the years have gone on that it's, it's much more complicated than that. When the pandemic came along, young people were much more susceptible to health disinformation than older people, probably because older people were more health literate because they're, they're, they're used to dealing with health issues. They're used to getting information about ailments and assessing it for usefulness and veracity and then applying it to their own life, whereas lots of young people haven't thought about health information before because we're not subjected to a lot of it. And then the other thing is 
your mum grew up in a world where you could trust information if it was written down. Your written information, by definition, had gone through some kind of filter before it reached an audience. Young people are growing up in a world where it's not so much that they trust written information, it's that they don't trust any information. Because for a young person growing up now, everyone is a creator. Everyone is a content creator. So why would you trust a news outlet? Why would you trust a politician when they say something, when your friend can say something and occupy the same real estate on the same platform? So it's an entirely different problem where, where young people are digital natives but have not given the context and the skills to evaluate information accurately because of their digital native uh, status. So it's not so simple as just uh, thinking that uh, young people will grow up in an environment where uh, they can embrace new technologies or intuitively get the algorithms power over them or machine learning's impact on our lives. And um, we're seeing, luckily, the this generation is also imbued with much deeper sense of community values and um, and ethical um, application of their values in their in every facet of their lives. The older generation might do good on the side, might do charity on the side and then work for British American tobacco, right? And not see the two things in conflict, whereas people these days, they don't want to work in jobs that don't align with their values. So you have to be optimistic that that will combine with really taking back a lot of power of these technologies, setting guidelines and parameters that they can't be used harmfully, um, like your engineers in Silicon Valley who don't want to work for an AI company where that AI is going to be used for a military application, but they will want that technology to be used for a healthcare application. Mm. So this gives us hope that it's a brave new world, yes, but this next generation will understand it much better than our generation and, and be better equipped to deal with it. Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, I look at technology and movements like, you know, the Center for, for Humane Technology or the idea that, you know, technology should be serving us and not necessarily profiting from our human vulnerabilities and the work of, you know, people like Tristan Harris, you know, watch The Social Dilemma, for example. But I also see little heartening things like on Facebook, if I try and share, you know, a news article, for example, with, with someone, and if I didn't finish reading the whole thing and if I didn't think about sharing it first, you know, there's a little warning label kind of going, are you sure you want to share this piece of information with someone before you've actually evaluated it. So I can also see that, you know, we can design these things in a, in a, in a human-centric fashion uh, as well. Ed Copa, it's been uh, it's been phenomenal having you on the show, which is really just really just an excuse to reconnect <laughs> after like twenty odd years. Um, but um, yeah, I honour and and credit and massive cap nod to to your work, and also showcase that even despite the fact that things might sound a bit dystopian, that with the right tools, the right memes, the right ideas, and hopefully even the right facts, you can build and design a new future narrative that creates a groundswell movement like it has in Australia now, which hopefully prepares us and, and actually helps us change gear, not by 2050, but by 2030 on these really, really important issues. So thank you for spending time on The Second Renaissance. Thank you, Anders, for having me. It was a great pleasure. Thanks, Ed, and uh, great to see you again. I believe Australia's future is in safer hands since you moved back from New York City. 
keep up the good work, mate. For more information about the Second Renaissance and our work on sustainable innovation, please visit my website, www.andersumanilson.com. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. We hope that what we learn together on the Second Renaissance can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.